0: Welcome back to New Books in History. My name is Derek Litvak, and I'll be your host. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Christine M. DeLucia about her book, Memory Lands, King Philip's War and the Place of Violence in the Northeast, published by Yale University Press in 2018. Dr. DeLucia is an assistant professor of history at Williams College. Memory Lands provides a much-needed new account of King Philip's War, which centers the natives of the Northeast instead of the English colonizers. Weaving together the history of King Philip's War and the history of, Na- of Northeast Native people to the modern day, Dr. DeLucia illustrates the many complex ways in which history and historical violence are intimately connected to the present day and rarely ever part of just the past. Dr. DeLucia, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks so very much for having
0: me. So I guess to kick off things, could you tell our listeners how you became interested in this project and why you chose to study it?
1: Sure. Uh, this project began when I was a college student and I took a class on native history and literature in the Northeast, mostly out of happenstance. It fit in my schedule um, with the scholar Lisa Brooks. And it was one of the most transformative experiences I had as an undergraduate. It made me realize how little I knew about Native communities, histories, presences in the Northeast, even though I had grown up in New Hampshire, uh, this was really unfamiliar terrain to me, and I became quite excited by it, as well as perplexed and troubled by my own lack of knowledge. And so I wanted to go further into these understandings. Uh, I also took a class in college about the history of Boston, and as a research project, I began looking into the place known as Deer Island, which eventually came to figure as the first section of the book. Um, Deer Island, which we'll probably touch on a little bit more uh, in brief, was an immensely fraught site during King Philip's War, where many Native people were forcibly incarcerated in the winter of 1675-76. And when I began learning about this as a college student, it was shocking to me is history, first of all, and then the fact that the island has been overbuilt by a sewage treatment plant. And beginning to get further into those topics, even as a college student, set me on this path of wanting to understand how the Northeast had taken shape and what these really contested locations were. And from there, it turned into a graduate project uh, and then my first book. And it's taken many turns and twists along the way,
0: of course. Well, it's nice that you kind of came across a project all the way back in undergrad and were able to kind of keep with it. That's not something that we're usually able to do.
1: No, and I think it's worth mentioning that history because it was as a college student who was beginning to work with Native scholars like Lisa Brooks uh, that I became immersed in Native studies methodologies and alternate ways of approaching history beyond Kind of straightforward use of archival collections. Uh, what does it mean, for example, to go out to a place with a knowledgeable community member? Well, we began to do that in some of the classes I was taking. And that was a profoundly important thing for me to examine and explore and create for myself other methods of engaging with history. Uh, and it's been a more than a decade process of doing that. Uh, and I'm still continuing to learn uh, about these methods.
0: And speaking of that, one of the things that I really appreciated about your book was how much you talked about just the process of trying to, you know, research and, you know, quotation marks Mm -hmm. this book. Because you mentioned that um, for Native people, you know, scholars coming into their communities and researching is not something that they look uh, very fondly on because it's it's just, you know, someone coming in and trying to use their mm-hmm. own history for their own purposes. Mm-hmm. And so what was this like for you? You know, what 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 sort of archives and non-archives in this sort of traditional sense were you using for this?
1: Uh, I, I appreciate the question. I am upfront in the book and when I teach and when I talk about these Topics publicly that I am not a Native community member, uh, and that that shapes and informs my own position in relation to these topics. Uh, and it has led me towards what some have called decolonizing methodologies. I was really influenced by Linda Tukiwai Smith, uh, who's a Maori scholar, talking about how fraught, as you mentioned, research can be, meaning when it becomes an appropriative colonialist project of outsiders coming in and seeking to extract from communities and their own knowledge systems. I knew from the very outset of this, that that was not the kind of dynamic uh, that I wanted to pursue, that ethically, that was not where I wanted to be. And so the resulting book that uh, that you have in your hands reflects a lot of my own grappling with methods and ethics and responsibilities. Um, a couple points that I would mentioned regarding research, it has always been important for me to recognize how much research tribal communities themselves have done over many, many generations, right? And this includes genealogical research, investigations into documents, often in relation to land claims uh, and recognition cases, right? So, there's a lot of of research that tribal communities have done um, as they have come under pressure to meet federal recognition criteria And that research has often led me in important directions. Uh, It has given me insights into communities' own understandings of these sources. Um, Some other dimensions of this that I I think I would highlight, there's a lot of material that didn't make it into the book, and there's good reason for that. It is not some kind of censorship, um, but instead a recognition that some of the places connected to King Philip's War, especially those involving Grave sites or sites of ceremony are not, in my view, appropriate for putting into a book like this. They are something that communities themselves are working with, are protecting, uh, and I left those sometimes on the margins of this book. Um, There is much that can be talked about openly, right? And a lot of my research took me into places where communities are very actively and publicly grappling with the meanings of this conflict. Um, deliberately trying to speak to broader audiences. Uh, I am unbelievably indebted, uh, I want to underscore that, to community members from Wampanoag, from Nipmuc, Mohegan, uh, and other tribal communities, Abenaki, the Wabanaki communities, um, Narragansett, for taking the time to talk with me about this project, even in its very early stages, uh, to field some of my questions, to steer me in better directions, uh, to sometimes disagree with me um, quite forcefully about interpretations. What does this document mean? What does this place mean? I immensely appreciate those conversations, um, especially the ones that have been unfolding for years, where I can't quite remember where they started, but they, they keep unfolding, Um, And the relationships that have come out of this research are something that I value perhaps more than anything else. The sense of a collaborative um, kind of shared project of revisiting these 17th century pasts.
0: For me, I mean, I was kind of amazed when reading this book, because I I think for people who are, you know, used to reading a sort of uh, quote unquote, like traditional history, this might be uh, a little bit, you know not jarring but a little bit odd for them to read because it is mm-hmm. so much um kind of it foregrounds much of what you're doing to get the material that you're that you're focusing on mm-hmm. and you know you're weaving together both the past and the present and you're talking about the long-term consequences of this war yes. which i guess kind of brings us to our next topic of how does your book Uh, intervene in the historiography of King Philip's War, because I'm sure people who have read a book on King Philip's War, it probably was, um, oh, I'm blanking on the name. Uh, (laughs) Jillipore? Jillipore, yes. Jillipore's book. the name of War. Yes. And so, and I remember I kind of briefly read that book once. And this one is, at least to me, a far cry from that.
1: Sure. I'd, I would love to say a couple things about the historiography, which is very rich. Uh, I read Jillipore's Bancroft prize-winning book, The Name of War, King Philip's War and the Origins of American Identity, when I was a college student. And in fact, she was the chair of the history and literature program that I was enrolled in. And... I will say simply that we had some some interactions and some disagreements about methods um, that have carried carried on through today. Uh, My goals with this book were to make a number of interventions. The first was to move readers away from thinking about King Philip's war in isolation. Instead of focusing strictly on the 17th century, instead saying, Look, all of these conflicts, these movements, these actions, these military campaigns, the movements of Native people seeking safety, they're not happening in a void. They're happening in extraordinarily long standing Native homelands that have sh- taken shape over thousands of years. And so, for example, there are reasons why Great Swamp emerges as this unbelievably violent site of, of Native devastation in 1675. Narragansett people had long traditions of retreating to swamps during times of conflict. Um, there were also thousands of years old traditions of going to the place called Pesciomskut, later known as Turner's Falls, um, as an ancient fishing site. And so part of what I'm doing in the book is interweaving the 17th century violences with these much longer durée or longer time span native histories uh, connected to place. Um, another intervention that this book is making is moving away from a text centered approach. Um, I do an awful lot with archives and I feel that I should emphasize that I've worked in, uh, over a hundred small collections, small and large in the Northeast. And I'm, uh, very committed to thinking about documents in rigorous and creative ways. At the same time, I have often been frustrated as a historian, in the manner that written documentation is allowed to define the parameters of our understandings. And so in response to that, uh, I have done a lot of place-based work, meaning going out on the land and water itself and learning from those environments. I have done a lot of work with communities, uh, as we've been discussing oral history, um, community knowledge of ancestral pasts. I've done a lot of work with material culture, So how can objects, including archaeologically retrieved objects, shed a different kind of light on this conflict than the story written primarily by Anglo colonizers might? Uh, And that kind of interdisciplinarity is something that came to me fairly organically through my intellectual career. Um, It is certainly something I'm still committed to, again, not throwing out archives or Undermining the importance of archives, but saying we need to put written documents into a much more capacious set of sources that can shed light on the past. Uh, and that's often a, a complicated, um, sometimes a confusing endeavor to braid these different strands together. But I think it's absolutely essential for doing Native history, particularly um, when written archives have been such a small and complicated sliver um, of people's representations of the past. Um the other intervention um, that I would say this is making is related to scale that perhaps when you read uh Jill Lapore's book uh or other studies of this war um you came away with the impression that this is really a New England conflict and certainly southern New England uh the southern part of the northeast is a vital theater of this war and of its ongoing implications but especially in the last part of my book Um, which I refer to as the Red Atlantic or the Indigenous Atlantic, I am aiming to open up the geography of war much wider uh, and to trace some of the ways that Native people who were taken as prisoners of war and wound up being trafficked by the English into various forms of unfreedom, ranging from outright slavery to indentured servitude, uh, how they became forcibly dispersed over this vast Atlantic geography. Which stretches from North Africa to the Caribbean to possibly Bermuda, um, as well as up into New France and up into Wabanaki country. It turns out that when you widen the frame like that, the stories of Native continuance become much foregrounded, uh, as well as Native people's interactions, intermarriages, relationships that they would have formed in these diasporic uh, locations with people of African descent. And by that measure, this opening up of the war, I think, brings to light a much more complicated and multi-layered understanding of this. It's not just a Native English conflict; it's something uh, hemispheric, in fact.
0: And I know for me, I found it. I found it very interesting. Uh, the kind of the scale of the book, as you're saying, and the way that you go about where you're finding information, like you said, you're going to these places. Um, and for me, you know. I'm not very well versed in native history. It's something that I am trying to, you know, get more information on now that I'm, you know, past the comp stage of my graduate career and I'm not dying by reading a million books. <laughs> right. um, and so I, I, I appreciate kind of having, you know, a history that, you know, kind of butted up against some of the books that I've read. And one of the things that I really appreciated was this uh, concept of memory space that you Mm. talk about. Mm -hmm. And so what is this and why is it important?
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, So the word memory scape, I came up with, or I came around to in the process of grappling with how to talk about the linkages between memory and place. Uh, Is it a landscape or does that word not really encompass um, the full nature of people's relationships with the past through place? Uh, My goal in using this word is partly to put it out there as a concept or a term that others might take up and explore in other historical contexts. Uh, It also has very specific meanings in the Northeast. I'm using it to uh, bring to light the ways that communities' understandings of the past have often been intimately localized, right? So, an understanding of what is important from times before might be connected to this mountain or this home site or this fishing place or this swamp. And it is not possible in a lot of these cases to extricate understandings of the past. From understandings of place, um, so I'm really, you know, kind of delving into this nexus between place and history, uh, and seeing something that is new uh, when history is located back in place. Uh, part of this, perhaps, looping back to the question about the interventions that are being made here, is to value the local in a new way, uh, in a way that antiquarians, oddly enough, in the 19th century um, were quite invested. They understood that the, the sort of the postage stamp size of inquiry could actually be very illuminating um, for understanding complexities and nuances from the past. And so the book is actually organized around place, around particular memoryscapes uh, that I came to identify through the course of my research. For instance, Deer Island and uh, the area around Boston is the first part. The second part is about the Narragansett country, the coastal homelands west of uh, and around Narragansett Bay. The third part is about the Great River, meaning the or Connecticut River um, that flows 400 miles down the length of the Northeast. Uh, and then, as I had mentioned, uh, the Red Atlantic or the Indigenous Atlantic. Other people might define different memory scapes. And of course, I welcome those additional vantages. But I deliberately structured this project around place, rather than around a linear chronology, uh, in order to highlight and and really force readers to grapple with the importance of particular localities um, and their material changes over time. Meaning what happens when an island has a sewage plant built on it, or when a river is dammed, or when swamps are drained. Uh, And in that respect, memory scapes is also a manner of doing environmental history and of tracking physical, material, ecological changes over time, as well as social
0: changes. And kind of getting going on from that. And I think listeners will kind of pick up on this so far in our conversation. Your book begins for all intents and purposes on the water, Mm -hmm. water, was for many people, Mm -hmm. very important. Um, and you know, I think of, you know, conversations that are had on, you know, say the podcast on my relations, um, I talk about this a lot. And so how does this play into your study?
1: Uh, that's a wonderful question. As I was completing the book, the water protection efforts at Standing Rock were beginning to gain momentum. And the concept, the rallying cry of water is life was something that I was thinking about a lot. Um, And reading Native perspectives on how different communities have related to waterways across the continent. um, I'll say a little bit about why the book begins on the water. And I'm glad you mentioned that. It begins in a canoe going down the Charles River out into Boston Harbor as part of the Deer Island Memorial that community members had organized a number of years ago. It is a waterborne commemoration. It's not a reenactment, but it's a way of honoring native ancestors who were incarcerated on that island, many of whom perished, um, during that horrifying winter of 1675. I attended the Deer Island Memorial that year. um, I believe this is 2010. Um, although correct me if I'm wrong on that, uh, and intended to bear witness, to see what happened, um, to talk with some people, and to really be an observer. But almost as soon as I got to the event, uh, and it was a very cold day, I remember that people invited me to get in the canoes, and in fact, uh, asked for my assistance in helping paddle the canoes. And for me, that has been a transformative moment that has had me reflect on what my position is in this scholarship? Is it as an observer who stands on the sidelines? Is it as someone who is participating, paddling the canoe, helping to bring forward these other understandings? Uh, And so I really wanted to begin with that memorial down in the river, in part to emphasize community members' own efforts to recall and make visible these other histories and to acknowledge their organization and their agency in doing that work, even as many colonial histories have tended to erase um, those experiences. I also wanted to be able to reorient readers away from what you might call conventional geographies or boundaries. So instead of talking about, say, the highways in Boston um, that you drive on, how does this place look different? From the vantage of a machine, a dugout canoe, uh, or a modern kind of canoe on that waterway? How does that open up a different understanding of the importance of this waterway as a fishing place, as a mobility route for transportation, as a a site of conflict um, when people were forced down that river? It helps people see place differently, I think. Um, And then in the end of the book, I wind up circling back to water as something that English colonizers mobilize against Native people, right? They are strategically sending Native prisoners away from New England on ships to the Caribbean, to Tangier, North Africa, intending to use the Atlantic Ocean itself as a barrier it becomes all that more difficult for native survivors to make their way back to the northeast if they have been sent down to the Caribbean or uh, to North Africa. And so in that sense, water has often been used against native people as part of colonial military strategies. Um, You see the same type of thing happening in part three of the book when I talk about this horrific massacre that the English perpetrated against Native people gathered at the waterfall along the uh, Quinetico River. Uh, They force some people, Native people, women, children, elders, over the waterfalls at dawn, turning this place of extraordinary replenishment and revitalization, right, an ancient fishing place, they turn it into a weapon. And they use it to inflict fatalities on these Native communities. And so in that respect, I think we can see through these different examples of water uh, the contested politics around it, that it has always been something um, that different kinds of communities have valued and have often tried to push out their perceived opponents um, in order to gain control um, over, over its resources,
0: right? I mean, it's, it's very insightful in the way that, you know, why how it's important and how it it's used against people, which is, you know, a very cruel twist of fate to use something that is very near and dear to, you know, a group of people against them like that.
1: Yes. Uh and is is part of what so much of the book gets at, this longer history of settler colonial dispossessions, attempts to remove native people from their homelands and to obtained for colonizer uses that land for farms, to pasture their livestock, to gain access to the waterways, to construct mills, right? That's that's going on on so many of these waterways. Uh, English people are creating mills, sawmills, other kinds of um, food processing mills, and Native people are seeing the consequences, that the fish are no longer coming upstream in the way they used to, uh, and that access to this resource is becoming really hampered. Uh, and those are some of the the causes of King Philip's War, right? When we get into what leads to this tension in the late 17th century, it is substantially about land and water.
0: Like we've mentioned before, you know, your book is just as much about how the history of this time period and of King Philip's War and what happens during it, um, how that plays into, you know, the modern day mm-hmm. coming into the modern day the 20th century the 19th century you know it's not an mm-hmm. isolated event as you said and one of the things that really um stuck with me when reading the book was a quote by um frank james who mm-hmm. is i hope i'm pronouncing this co- correctly and Alkina uh,
1: wampanoag yes
0: Wa wampanoag uh-huh. and talking and he's invited to as you say you know this you know, commemoration and everything. And, you know, he's supposed to kind of just play a role in the eyes of, you Mm -hmm. know, the people around him. And he, he doesn't, he tries to push back against that. Mm -hmm. And he talks about native people, being heard versus being listened to yes. and you relate this to um native urbanization mm-hmm. something that is pretty much you know erased in the i in america and the idea that you know americans think of native americans being in certain places mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. not and and not in other places and so how is all of this kind of intimately connected
1: uh, i love the question uh and it was important for me uh to uh, grapple with the many instances that Native people over many centuries have actively spoken back against colonial attempts to control the narrative. Uh, Frank James Wamsoda, uh gives a kind of counter speech uh, at Plymouth in the 1970s, which becomes the genesis of the National Day of Mourning, which recalls a very different history versus the kind of consensual um, pilgrim Thanksgiving narrative. Uh, and I often use that speech actually when I teach um, to bring to students' attention these important Wampanoag and other indigenous intellectual histories, that there's such a deep tradition of native engagement with history itself and resistance to being forced into saying certain narratives or disclaiming the more um, difficult and challenging parts of these histories. Uh, Your point about history in the now... Right, that these are ongoing dialogues uh, is really important. Um, The 21st century has almost certainly seen a resurgence uh, in Native voices, perspectives, vantages, interventions um, attaining public notice. And I think that that's a wonderful phenomenon. Um, And to the extent that my book can contribute to that work, I would be uh, very grateful. Um, The history of the now has to do with place as well. Right, that uh, there is this persistent narrative in North America, not just New England, but across the continent, that Native people do not exist in modernity. They do not exist in cities. They do not exist, kind of out of certain locations, often associated with reservations. And a lot of the contemporary part of my book, the 20th century part, um, was looking into places like Providence, Rhode Island, Boston. Um, even some of the towns of Western Massachusetts to see how Native communities and intertribal organizations are using those urban locations to organize, to create different kinds of solidarities, uh, and often to strategically stage protests in urban spaces because participants knew that that would gain a certain kind of audience. So to take one example, uh, Narragansett community members stage a protest in the late 20th century, um, I think, uh, or the early 21st in Providence, Rhode Island, pushing back against some federal actions that were constraining their sovereignty. Uh, And they deliberately do this in the capital of Rhode Island, because they knew that this would have a spotlight on their actions and would give them a media presence, right, to the kinds of critiques that they're making. It's a really careful and thoughtful approach to place that Native communities have also done uh, immensely important activities in reservation areas uh, or in sort of more quietly protected areas um, that are off the media spotlight. And there's an importance to that too. Um, But part of what I'm doing in this book is looking at the different values that certain kinds of locations have for making these interventions. Uh, And perhaps related to that point um, on urbanization, uh, the overbuilding of sensitive landscapes continues to happen. And it has been troubling to see just how many parts of the Northeast uh, are putting under threat sensitive native areas. These include burial sites during, say, sewage construction projects. Or as I talk about in the area of Turner's Falls in Western Massachusetts, uh, potential ceremonial landscapes where the expansion of an airport runway uh, threatened to destroy or at least uh, damage the integrity of these sites that Native communities have identified as important. Um, and so a lot of the latter stretches of the book get into those, um, those ongoing pressures that are put on places as a way of thinking about different values that native and non-native communities often have.
0: And speaking of, you know, the, the struggle to, you know, resist these developments of, you know, native uh, places by, you know, uh, English society, uh, colonizers and, and everything like that and how they're kind of taken away from native people. You speak, you know, we've spoken a few times about, you know, Deer Island so far. And one of the things that I, I found interesting was how Native people try to advocate for themselves in, in the sort of redevelopment of Deer Island for their own purposes and to reflect their own history and to push back against this massive, you know, sewage treatment center that you have pictured in the book. And so... What does that look like, and how how is that sort of um, a representation of you know the historical violence that you speak about?
1: Right. Uh, So the very short backstory to the Deer Island sewage plant uh, is that in the 1990s there were proposals in Boston to create a new wastewater treatment facility that would better process the vast amount of wastewater um, being produced in that area, and the site that was proposed was Deer Island. The site of Native incarceration during King Philip's War. And this immediately occasioned a large outpouring of criticism and of pushback by a number of different tribal communities in the Northeast, um, who rightfully, in my view, said this is immensely disrespectful of a sensitive landscape. Uh, They, in fact, used the language of concentration camp, which, as I mentioned in the book, is very fraught to draw that analogy, and yet it is something that communities did in order to impress upon non-natives the importance of this site, right? It is is a site of such trauma and such loss. The short version is that the sewage plant got built anyway. The Massachusetts Wastewater Treatment uh, Authority, um, is now in charge of that, and I took a very illuminating, you might say, tour of the site one summer to see how the water managers talk about it. And I was fascinated and troubled that they mentioned just about none of this history. Uh, But uh, coming back to your question um, about the redevelopment, in the course of the wastewater treatment plant proposal, Because uh, this was a a government-sponsored process, there were a number of documents created, planning documents, and listening sessions and opportunities for Native communities to weigh in on this. And as a result of that, different plans were floated for how the island, even with the plant, um, might become better used to bring to the forefront Native perspectives, Native understandings of place, and ongoing relationships to the islands in Boston Harbor. I I feel I should emphasize that most of those plans did not come to fruition. And there's a kind of downbeat quality to this part of the story that, um, for example, there had been a magnificent proposal to create a Native cultural center on Deer Island or on one of the other islands that could bring to visitors much deeper and more thoughtful, nuanced perspectives on the indigenous significances of the Boston Harbor Islands. Most of this did not come into being. Um, There are some exceptions, and I would mention that there have been some educational relationships developed with the Harbor Islands that have involved Native interpretation. But overall, I see this as uh, a work in progress at best, and perhaps an example of how bureaucracy has impeded um, a uh, a truly more uh, multivocal redevelopment of this island. At the same time, The Deer Island Memorial involving the canoes uh, that I was mentioning and that I talk about in the book is something that doesn't require government sponsorship. In fact, it proceeds uh, largely without that kind of formal um, state oversight, and that's where most of its power comes from. It is something organized by Native people and carried out by them, regardless of what the colonial state might desire. And that kind of activity is also important, even though it has Less of a um, sort of throughout the whole year presence. It happens at a certain time and then endures in people's memories. Uh, I do have aspirations, uh, and I know that others have talked about this, um, to do more in terms of creating resources to teach about sites like this, um, to help educate the public about the significance of sites, not only like Deer Island, but the extensive native landscapes around them. And there is also a proposed native memorial um, that hopefully uh, in the not distant future will take shape uh, directly on that site and make these histories more legible to people who
0: visit. And to speak about another site that you um, study in your book um, and that you've spoken about so far, the Great Swamp,
1: Mm-hmm.
0: and so why is this area also important for your study um you mentioned earlier that you know this has been uh swamps were an area that native people had traditionally uh taken refuge in yes and so how does this play both into you know king philip's war but also in terms of speaking about how you know, King King Philip's War has reverberations throughout history. Mm -hmm. How is it still very important?
1: Yeah. Uh, So Great Swamp is a magnificent, fertile, beautiful, full-of-life wetlands area just west of Narragansett Bay. It is part of the longstanding traditional homelands of the Narragansett people. And I think it's important to emphasize at the outset just how valuable uh, such places were And continue to be for native communities in the Northeast. This is really contrary to the ways that many English colonizers talked about swamps as devilish, hateful, frightful, um, sort of barren of, of goodness places. They were fearful of them. But for native people, they knew that wetlands were rich with important plants, medicinal plants included, fish, animals, birds. Uh, and really thrived. Um, they were also powerful places, um, sort of liminal areas between land and water. Um, Great Swamp is sometimes uh, quite inundated at different points of the year and, and sometimes almost like solid land. Um, and so it's it's a quite dynamic place. Um, as you mentioned, and as I talk about in the book, uh, traditional ecological knowledge of Native people led them not only to harvest many resources from the swamps, um, but also to go to them during times of conflict. They knew that there was more protection to be had in a watery place like that. Uh, And they certainly knew after colonization begins that their English neighbors had very little knowledge of wetlands and very little ability to traverse them, say, on horseback. Uh, And so it is for these reasons that Narragansett's in late 1675, enact these traditional practices of retreating to swamps during times of conflict. And they go to Great Swamp. They also take in many of their Wampanoag kin, um, their relationship or their relations from across the bay, um, and seek shelter inside a palisade that they constructed inside Great Swamp. At many, uh, In many years, they would have been safe there, uh, protected by the kind of moat that the swamp creates around the Palisade. Um, But in that year of 1675, it's during the Little Ice Age. It is especially cold, and the swamp freezes through. It allows English troops to infiltrate the swamp. They gain intelligence from a native informant um, about the Narragansetts and Wampanoags who are located there, and it becomes the site of an English massacre perpetrated upon hundreds of native people. The narrative that I was pushing back so strongly against was uh, one that you find in much of the historiography that the attack on Great Swamp is the end for the Narragansetts and for many of the Wampanoags. That after that point, there's very very little momentum, um, maybe only sort of straggling survivors. Instead, I talk about where those survivors go and the fact that Native people did manage to regroup in the aftermath of that massacre. They went to places like Pesky Amsgood, the waterfall along the the Connecticut River. They gather there with their relations. They become replenished by the fish runs. And that kind of ongoing history is so important to bring to light so that there is not this narrative of finality. But it's also the narrative of finality um, that I grapple with. Because that is what so much of the colonial signage and kind of popular memory, certainly in that part of Rhode Island, um, has put forth as the claimed true story. In fact, there's a sign that for many years stood at the entrance to Great Swamp, saying that this was effectively the end of the Narragansetts at this location. And for someone passing by that sign who didn't know any better, they might take that as fact they might take it as a truth that there were no more Narragansetts left, when in fact Narragansetts have remained sovereign people in their own homelands right through today. Uh, And so much of what I'm doing in tracking out the aftermath of Great Swamp is seeing the different ways that colonial and native communities have interpreted that place, have attempted to manage it, have in the early 20th century erected a really astonishing monument um, right in the heart of Great Swamp, on the sensitive ground. Uh, and pairing that kind of approach, which is so erasive of Native people in modernity, right, saying that this is the, the end of them in the 17th century, pairing that, juxtaposing that with events like a memorial pilgrimage to Great Swamp, the Narragansetts have organized for many years, uh, and the ceremonies that they have staged inside that swamp um, to commemorate ancestors, and equally important, to look to the future and to insist upon the continuance of the community and the ways, especially that their young people are carrying forward Narragansett identity. That kind of dynamic is what especially interested me as I began uh, kind of excavating this concept of memory scapes, how can these utterly different conceptions of the past and of the present coexist seemingly in the same location? And how does it change the story when we center something like the Narragansett events that continue to take place there? There's also, I might say, uh, an ecological dimension to thinking about swamps, right? That we we know because of the ways that there were survivors, we know that native people made it out of Great Swamp. Where did they go? It can be hard to say using only colonial documents from the 1670s because colonizers had very little access to huge parts of the northeastern interior. And yet, if we look at, say, where the wetlands are, west of Narragansett Bay, we can at least provisionally begin to imagine the geographies of survival, where Narragansetts and Wampanoags would have gone as they fled the fire and the destruction at Great Swamp. Uh, And so in that sense, environmental studies and ecological approaches to place uh, have informed some of the speculations I make. I do try to be quite clear where kind of the limits of the documentary record are and where I'm using other methods to try to bring to light these other pathways.
0: And I think for me, when you are, you know, like you just said, kind of being upfront and saying like, okay, there's a limit in these sources. And so I'm trying to turn to these other fields to use that for me. I I really appreciate that because, Mm -hmm. you know, in in my own kind of studies, I kind of, I run into a lot where I think, you know, okay, the sources are saying one thing, but I really think there's a lot of limits here. And Mm -hmm. so I feel like, for me, it's kind of refreshing to see when historians are willing to kind of put aside their own field and say, okay, there's limits here. Mm -hmm. And it's important that we push past those and try and see what our sources can't or won't tell us.
1: Mm -hmm. Oh, I completely agree. And uh, circling back to the interdisciplinary piece that I was talking about earlier, for me, that has been a way of constructively challenging supposed silences, right? There may, in fact, be a silence in the documentary archive about a certain event or a certain place. But that doesn't mean that there are not other ways of knowing about that, including through, say, collaborative archaeology. Um, There have been some magnificent unfolding projects out by Turner's Falls and Pesky Omskid where archaeologists connected to the Mashantucket Pequot Research Center Uh, have been working with tribal representatives um, from Wampanoag, Abenaki, Nipmuc communities to together go out on the land and use these other streams of evidence and these other ways of knowing um, to try to determine what has happened there. And they've had amazing success, including some that didn't really make it into the book because this work is still happening. Um, But I'll just mention that over the summer, I went to a meeting about this battlefields archaeology group and they were talking about finding material evidence in the form of ammunition in the earth that allowed them to bring to light this extensive powerful native counterattack right on the heels of the massacre at Peskyomsk that is a dimension of the history that is almost not mentioned in colonial written sources but the land itself as well as oral traditions attest to that and so it seems to me vital for historians to open up their, their vantage essentially um, in order to account for those other streams of knowing as well as the limits of them.
0: And speaking of kind of, you know, being open to, you know, other history, you know, Native mm-hmm. enslavement is something that, you know, scholars have talked about from time to time. Mm-hmm. It's not something that, uh, that you know, American historians um, in particular are probably, you know, not unfamiliar with, but it's not something that is, you know, also centered, I think. Mm-hmm. And you talk about, you know, as you mentioned earlier, you know, the Caribbean mm-hmm. as something that is vitally important to Native history, something mm-hmm. that you know, I I would hazard to say a lot of people don't think about that much. Mm -hmm. And so how does the Caribbean and, you know, specifically Bermuda Mm -hmm. factor into this history?
1: Right. So indigenous enslavement uh, is a topic that has been gaining, as you noted, more scholarly attention. Recently, I'm thinking of work by Alan Galay, Christina Snyder, um, and a number of other scholars. I always like to resist the notion that scholars are discovering this history because in fact native communities themselves have stewarded important stories about ancestors who experienced unfreedom in different ways. Um, and for example, Tall Oak Whedon, um, who is a, a prominent uh, Native community member in the Northeast, has said some absolutely vital things on this count, um, saying we have known these stories and now scholars are coming around to them and trying to put them into some bigger frameworks. Uh, It's also, I think, a very timely moment to be stressing the centrality and early formation of indigenous enslavement uh, in colonial North America. Um, I'm thinking of the just published issue from the New York Times that you might have seen about 1619, is that anything that has, has come on your radar?
0: <laughs> I, I definitely have seen that. I have not had the chance to read it, but I have seen it.
1: <laughs> yeah. So it, well, um, likewise for me, I've begun delving into it and intend to teach with it um, this fall in a class I do about Atlantic world histories. And it's both absolutely important, um, stressing the, the origins of uh, enslavement of people of African descent, and also creates a space for conversation, I believe. To think at the same time about indigenous enslavement. When does that begin in relation to various empires, colonial projects, and how does that evolve and eventually um, uh, sort of combine with or dissociate from enslavement of people of African descent? Uh, This part of the book about indigenous enslavement and freedom was probably the most challenging for me to write because it took me into geographies, into bodies of scholarship that were not my main area. And yet, it seemed impossible to me to tell the story without those locations, including Bermuda, um, which uh, I would really like to to tip my hat to and express my gratitude to community members on St. David's Island in Bermuda, including Brinkie Tucker uh, and a number of others who very, very graciously showed me around some sites on the island, that in community traditions are believed to be connected to descendants um, of Native people thrown out of New England at the end of King Philip's War and sold into bondage. It was an especially challenging uh, section to write, to think about, because there does seem to be a, a set of divergences or at least not neat overlaps between the archival record of Native presence in Bermuda. There is most certainly Indian presence in Bermuda in the 17th century, um, but where from exactly the documents do not tend to clearly say. Um, So a seeming lack of of direct overlap between that and some of the oral traditions. And it was important for me to talk about how and why those different forms of knowledge creation, archival community um, have taken shape over many centuries. Um, And I am so grateful to people at St. David's and in Southern New England tribal communities for, uh, for undertaking the effort of reconnecting, as they have described it in recent years, and of collaboratively themselves thinking through the implications of these diasporic histories. I fully expect the knowledge on those topics and those places to continue evolving um, and really want to credit community members themselves um, for delving into these often very, very difficult, uh, emotionally difficult histories.
0: So to finish off this interview, you know, we have this great book that I, you know, I'm going to encourage everyone to go out and buy. Once again, Christine M. DeLucia, Memory Land, King Philip's War and the Place of Violence in the Northeast. We have this amazing book in front of us right now. What can we expect from you in the future?
1: continuing projects, uh, including collaborative public history work. Um, I am at work uh, on a second book looking at the 18th century Northeast. I was really interested in what happens to the Native communities who survive King Philip's War. How do they regroup? How do they become resilient? How do they navigate their lives in the Northeast as they're in increasingly intimate proximity uh, to colonial as well as African American neighbors? And That project uh, also takes as one of its focal points Native knowledge keepers, Native people who are creating their own forms of engaging with the past, and Ezra Stiles, who is this interesting, problematic um, colonial figure in the 18th century who develops important relationships with tribal communities. He also has unfree Native people laboring in his own household. And his records about Native lives have created both understandings and impediments to understanding Native life in the 18th century. So it's a lot of project about how knowledge is made and what happens when we recenter Native experiences uh, in the era before, during, and after the American Revolution. I'll also mention just briefly that I'm especially excited by public history and the ways that I have been lucky um, to come Uh, on board with projects, including one with the Mohegan tribe related to historical signage down in their own homelands and some emerging relationships here in Western Massachusetts, including with um, the Stockbridge-Munsee Mohegan community. And I'm looking forward to helping support those relationships in classrooms and also out on the land, um, as well as in academic forms of writing.
0: Well, I'm sure... Um, whatever work that you produce, our listeners will be just as interested in that. And when you have a new book out, I'm sure we'll bring you right back on the program to talk about that one as well. Terrific. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Dr. Delucia, for being on the program. Thank you very much.